Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Bible episode of A Millennial Learns. If you have missed a few weeks or are new to the podcast, welcome. Um, I usually do podcasts every Monday morning is when they're released and it's on topics like faith, history, politics. Now I'm kind of dipping into health a little bit. So it's on a wide variety of topics, but I figured that knowing theology and knowing like doctrinal stuff is good to a point, but I need to be actually reading the Bible. So on Thursdays, I'm releasing an episode every week that will start in Genesis and go all the way through Revelation. So over the course of the week, I read about five chapters a day. Um, that's the goal. So the way that this works is I'm going to read them through the week. And as I read them, I jot down questions I have. Like it could be historical or, you know, why did this happen? And then basically I go look up Bible commentary to um, understand the passage better. And then I present all of that to you. So um, I'm very excited that you're here and thank you for listening and I hope um, you guys can follow along if you're you know actually a lot of people are probably way further into their um, reading the Bible in a year plan because most people start in January and actually I think probably stick to it a little bit better than I did I stuck to it for about three days so um, we are we're gonna get there Um, so this week we're going over Genesis 31 through Exodus 7 um, for, if you didn't listen to last week or you just need a refresher, Genesis 30, we see Jacob, um, working for Laban and he is married to Leah and Rachel. And he's been working on that on like in the fields for Laban for 20 years because Laban has tricked him, kind of mistreated him. He said to work seven years for Rachel's hand, then gave him Leah and tricked him. Then he worked for another seven years and gave um, gave Jacob Rachel, uh, to marry and then worked for another six years for livestock. So he's been working there for 20 years. Basically Jacob and Laban's sons in, uh, chapter 31 start to bicker and Laban's attitude kind of sours. And so Jacob decides to go off and return home back to his home in Canaan with all of his goods. So that includes like all of his livestock, all of his wealth, uh, and then Rachel and Leah and his entire family. So they, he tells Rachel and Leah that they are going to go back home. Rachel steals the household gods of her father. And my big question in this chapter was why Rachel did that, because it doesn't really say much past that other than a little bit later they bury any false gods Um, but it didn't say why she stole them so apparently there's a couple theories on this it says it you know it does say in this commentary that i found that it's not explicitly written why she stole them but some commentators have say that it was to prevent laban from worshiping idols which i feel like is a very noble thing um and might be too noble because she was talking about how uh they wanted to flee because god is on jacob's side and um basically she wanted to flee from her father so i mean she could be preventing him from worshiping idols since she knows the true god but i don't know i it's not clear the other theory is that um some idol they said that some idols might have magical power and Rachel didn't want them to tell or reveal to Laban what 
like the way that Jacob traveled so they could actually get away and escape. Um, so I don't know. Those seem very opposite of each other, but, uh, I guess there's, you know, jury's still out on that. We will never know, but she stole the idols. Laban eventually caught up to them and accused, you know, said that someone had stolen his idols. And this is a theme that happens, I feel like multiple times because it's already happened and we're not even out of Genesis yet, but Laban or, but Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen them and said, okay, search anywhere. If anyone has them in my party, then let them be put to death. This happens many times. So this is just another example of that. But Laban actually didn't end up finding those idols because Rachel um, put them in her like camel bag and sat on it and then said that she couldn't get up because it was her period. So pretty clever, but she kept it under wraps. Laban and Jacob then ended up making a covenant uh, basically saying to not mistreat or they agreed that Jacob would not mistreat the two daughters or take any other wives. And then they both said that they wouldn't cross that like mark where they made the covenant to harm each other. So it was basically a peace treaty plus like a be good to my daughter sort of treaty. I tried to look up how covenants were made back in this time period. And maybe I need to research that a little bit more because I could not find a ton. A lot of them talked about covenants between God and people. And that makes sense. But they talked about a whole thing about gathering stones and making a pillar and making like a post and all of this stuff. And I don't know, it just, I couldn't find anything super specific about the process of making a covenant between two people as opposed to a God or as opposed to God and a person. I do know that it involves like slaughtering an animal as a sacrifice to say that it's a covenant and then they ate together. So um, yeah, I think that was pretty custom at the time, but I couldn't find any documentation as to if that was how all covenants were or if it was just theirs. Okay, in Genesis 32, um, Jacob sends his messengers to Esau to tell him that he was coming home. And then the messenger came back and said that Esau had 400 men with him. So naturally, Jacob thought that he was going to be attacked. So he sent him many, many gifts ahead of him. So he sent like groups of gifts, which is like the donkeys and camels and it listed all these animals and all these groups of animals and he basically said to every group was led by someone and that person once they saw Esau was supposed to say um that basically Jacob was coming back to serve his master Esau it was like a peace offering and basically submitting to Esau. So when Jacob was on the way back to see Esau, because it was basically a caravan, so he sent all the gifts up first, and then he sent his wives and stuff. And like the interesting thing too was he sent his wives like in priority order. So his um like servants and their kids went first because they were like on the front lines basically. And then his and then Leah, who was the le- less loved wife, um, went next, and then Rachel, who was his favorite wife essentially went last so I thought that was funny like he thought he was marching into a battle and he he just he definitely put them in priority order so so we have a very interesting story so after he sends the whole caravan out he's the last one to cross this river to go you know on on the journey he's like bringing up the caboose and he sees this man who starts wrestling with him and the man couldn't overpower him, and so eventually he touched his hip. He the the man touched Jacob's hip, and it like was out of socket. It it injured his hip really badly, and so he was 
limping. They continue to struggle. They continue to struggle. And he said, and Jacob said, I won't go until you bless me. So the angel or the man blessed him. And then he says that he has seen God face to face and survived. So that made my question, you know, one of my questions for this uh, chapter, how could Jacob see God face to face? Because I always thought that was impossible. If you see God's full glory, you would die basically. And it seemed like Jacob also thought that because he said, you know, I've seen God face to face, but I'm still living, which is essentially like a miraculous thing. So I look up, looked up some Bible commentary on that, and there is a lot of debate on this story. It's a very confusing story for a lot of biblical, you know, even like theologians. So I'm glad because uh, I was like, am I just not understanding something? Because I thought that was super confusing. Um, but it seems pretty widely confused. So it sounds like there's some debate on it. But basically, the going train of thought, I think, is that God came in the form of a man. Essentially, he he revealed himself to Jacob in a form that he could kind of interact with, kind of like Moses in the burning bush. Or later, we'll get into the story of like three people were or three brothers, I think, were thrown into a furnace, and they found they saw a fourth man in there. It was kind of like that, where God shows up in the form of a man, and so. Um, so that's like the going thought. I did look up a another commentary that was from a Jewish website, and they said it was actually the angel of Esau that was that man. It wasn't like God revealing himself in his full glory. It was just a kind of representation of God on earth. So then my next question was, why couldn't God overpower Jacob? Because if he saw God face to face, and it said he couldn't overpower Jacob. Why is that? Obviously, God probably could. Um, I mean, well, not probably. He he definitely could overpower a man in a wrestling match. So, um, so this commentary said, uh, so what was God trying to demonstrate in this wrestling match by limiting himself to human powers? When he blesses and renames Jacob, oh yeah, that's an, a part I left out. After the, the match is over and the man blesses Jacob. He says that his name is going to change from Jacob to Israel um, because he is blessed. He said, so when he blesses and renames Jacob, he says, you have struggled with God and with human and with humans and have overcome. So he had probably been giving Jacob an opportunity to demonstrate in a dramatic way on a single occasion, the tenacity and endurance God had seen him develop throughout the 20 difficult years in exile. Those years had transformed Jacob from a conniving, grasping young man to the mature leader of a large clan who is now willing to face the brother he cheated and make things right with him. So it seems like a lot of people think this is kind of symbolic of Jacob's transformation because if you remember earlier in Genesis, he was the younger brother, um, but there was a prophecy that the older would serve the younger and Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright. He cheated him out of his blessing. And so he was con very conniving and deceitful and had sinned a lot. And so this struggle with God, or, you know, some people think it was an angel, is a representation of his struggle in his life and his transformation. It especially makes sense if that it was an angel of Esau. I don't know how in the biblical text you would deduce that, but it would be symbolic if it was Esau's angel because 
he's like struggling kind of with the spirit of Esau and hoping that Esau accepts him and they reconcile and all of that. So it's very symbolic of his transformation. And then another question in this section was when the man touches Jacob's hip and is injured. It says in the Bible that to this day, the Jewish people do not eat the hip of meat because because of this story to remember the story basically and so I was wondering you know this was written a long time ago so it could say like uh and to this day they don't eat the hip and it could have been like as of a long time ago but I looked it up and to eat kosher you are not supposed to eat the sciatic nerve because of Jacob's story because of his hip incident so Um, This is actually still true to this day, which I thought was super interesting. Okay, in Genesis 33, Esau and Jacob are reunited and they accept each other. They weep and give each other or try to give each other gifts and all this stuff. And um, it all, their reconciliation basically goes very well. So Esau and Jacob are in this land and they're near a city. And in Genesis 34, uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah got raped by the king's son. So the king of that city's son raped her. And then it's weird because they said that the son, I mean, they, the one sentence says the son raped her. And then the next sentence said, and then he loved her and spoke tenderly to her, which <laughs> like, okay. So it seems kind of manipulative. The king went over to Jacob and, you know, all of Jacob's sons and went to negotiate to actually give uh, Dinah to his son as a wife. So he actually wanted to marry Dinah. And the brothers were like, no, you can't rape our women. But they wanted to deceive him. So so this is like a crazy story of the Bible and honestly a little bit badass. Like I kind of like it, but, but they got punished for this a lot later. So basically the brothers pretended to go along with the fact that they would like negotiate and give Dinah over as a wife to the king's son. But they said, well, we can't intermarry with anyone who's uncircumcised. So go get all of your men circumcised and then we will intermarry with you. And they did that. They went and all got circumcised. And on the third day when they were all still sore and they couldn't really move around, two of the brothers actually went into the city and killed all of the men on the same day and like plundered the whole city and got all the women and kids and like looted the entire thing and killed every single man. So, like, yeah, they kind of put their foot down. But Jacob actually shamed them because they were a group that was very, very small in number. And there were a lot of surrounding cities. And if they had heard, if they were, like, allied and if the surrounding cities had heard, um, they could, you know, form alliances and basically uh, wipe out Jacob and his entire family. So it was very vulnerable, but it was like, yeah, don't mistreat our sister, which... I kind of liked that, but so in Genesis 35, Jacob actually tells everyone in his like group to bury all of the foreign gods and rings in their ears. And so I had a question about why the earrings were bad because I mean, I figured it it was paired with the pagan God thing. So I figured it was like something along those lines. Um, and then I looked up a commentary that basically said, yeah, uh, basically that it wasn't simple jewelry. It, either belonged to ancestors or was thought to be amulets, which are supposed to ward off evil or danger. It's like a pagan, um, it's a pagan thing. So they were getting rid of all foreign gods or any like pagan worship items. Uh, So that makes sense. So they were like done with these idols. 
And then also in this chapter, Jacob gets renamed by God. Like God comes directly to him and says that he's going to get renamed to Israel. So it's confusing why there's two stories about the renaming. But basically they thought that the first one could have just been the um, angel or the representation of God on earth just saying what will happen or he could just be driving his point home there's confusion on why there's two stories but the point is he got renamed to Israel and then going off of that um so his old name is Jacob his new name is Israel but they are used interchangeably so often so I was wondering why that happens if there's any symbolic thing most of the time when he's called Jacob he's kind of functioning in his old nature like his old deceiving nature and when he's called Israel he's acting out of his new nature that seems to be like consistent for like 90% of the references but there are some where it seems to not matter it seems to be interchangeable so um this thing says like it doesn't matter too much but most of the time they use Jacob as his bad self and Israel as his new self so that was super interesting because it was uh, it, it was weird to like keep reading it and keep going back and forth to like each name and so yeah so then uh later in this chapter Reuben actually sleeps so Reuben is Jacob's son and he sleeps with Jacob's concubine in his bed so he's like defiled his bed and I thought this was a really random thing to throw in but it does come in later Rachel who is Jacob's favorite wife. She's the one that he loves the most. Um, she dies in childbirth having Benjamin. So Benjamin is going to be uh, Jacob's youngest son. So then Rachel dies and then they finally get to, back to their homeland where Isaac is. Isaac's now 180 years old and then Isaac dies. So there's kind of a lot of death and sleeping around in this episode or in this, uh, I almost said episode, in this chapter. So yeah, and then Genesis 36 is just lineage and movement of Jacob, which honestly, I would look more into the movement of Jacob and Esau and like, because there's a lot of movement in Genesis. I don't know, you know, they're always saying that they're moving to a different region. Um, and I, at some point, need to look at a map of all this, where this movement happened, but I figured it wouldn't be that like beneficial to do that on a podcast where the audience can't see the map. So maybe if I do like YouTube or something, I'll make a map of where they traveled. But yeah, for right now, I'm just not going to look at it. I'm just going to blindly go and be like, oh, they're back in Canaan. They're in Egypt and not really know the geography of it. So in Genesis 37, we're introduced to Joseph once he's like, I think he said he was 17 um, in this episode. Oh my gosh, I keep saying episode. In this chapter, um, he is 17. They're shepherds and Joseph's brothers hated him. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was highly favored because he was the firstborn of his favorite wives. So even though he was... Um, the second to youngest, he was the favorite son of Jacob. So his brothers hated him and kind of for good reason, because he would go out to the field and then come and report back bad things about his brothers. He would like give them a bad report to their dad. So they didn't like him. He also had two dreams of 11. Uh, he also had two dreams of his family members bowing down to him and then he boldly told them about it. So one of them was um, they were like bundling grain into sheaves and then 
his sheave grew very tall and the other ones bowed down to him and there were 11. So it was like clearly symbolic of the 11 brothers. And then the next one, he, the um, 11 stars and a sun and a moon bowed down to him. So he just like boldly told all of that. So obviously they hated him because he's the second youngest and already kind of the teacher's pet with their dad. And then he's like, Hey, you guys are going to, bow down to me one day so kind of understandable about the brother's uh reaction well not well not their reaction their emotions their reaction went too far because they sold him into slavery so they went and took him on like this journey um and they were just gonna go kill him but they actually ended up selling him to slavery and they took his jacket off and killed a goat and dipped his jacket into goat's blood so that it looked like he got torn apart um, by an animal and they basically pretended that he was dead even though he was sold into slavery so like that's not a good reaction if you hate your brother but um the emotions i kind of get don't sell your brother into slavery though okay so when the brothers go back to their dad um and tell them that jacob's dead and say isn't this the cloak that um, is Jacob's because it was like this special ornate coat since Joseph was the young or the favorite of the dad. And so the dad sees the blood drenched ornate coat and it said that he tore his clothes and he was mourning. So I've heard a lot about this throughout the Bible. Like when I've read other things in the past where it always says that they're tearing their clothes and wearing like uh, what's it called? Nap, uh, sackcloths. So I knew that there was some sort of thing about mourning, but it always seems to be the same thing where they're ripping their clothes. So I looked up how people would mourn back in biblical times. And this is what this article said. It said, feelings of grief were expressed freely beginning immediately after a person died. Mourners ripped their clothes, tore out their hair, wore sackcloth instead of ordinary clothes sprinkled dust and ashes on their head and removed all jewelry. They wept and wailed and stopped eating. And then I think they would do that only for a certain amount of time and then go back to wearing uh, regular clothes. But then it also says during a period of mourning, friends would come to the house and visit, perhaps providing musicians. A family might hire professional mourners to keep up loud weeping for hours or days. Food was provided to the mourners. After the funeral, women would go to the grave early in the morning to pray, weep, or chant prayers. The period of mourning varied depending on the importance of the person who died. The Israelites mourned 30 days for Aaron, but fasted only seven days for King Saul. So that's very interesting. Now, like, well, I don't know if there's anything like that in like the Jewish culture still, but definitely not. That's not something that we do as like American Christians. So I thought that was, I thought it was interesting that they have like a whole uh, ritual for actually mourning. So Anyway, that is what um, the dad did. And he basically said that he would be in mourning until he died because Joseph was his favorite son. Okay, then in Genesis 38, it's kind of an interesting like side story because we're following, you know, Joseph, following Joseph's, uh, you know, dad mourning and his brothers and stuff like that. And then it just jumps to, I mean, it's still Joseph's brother, but it seems a little out of place. I guess it was probably chronological, but basically Judah married, um, a woman named Shua and they had a son named Er, I think it's just E R. So like, I think it's 
ear or er. Anyway, he married a woman named Tamar, but er or ear was so wicked that God struck him down. Well, er had a brother named Onan who was supposed to carry on his brother's line and have kids, but he, he got kind of resentful and said, well, I know that these kids wouldn't even be considered mine. They'd be my brothers. So he didn't want it to do that. And so he basically prevented Tamar from getting pregnant every time they did the deed. And that was also wicked in the eyes of God. And so God also struck him dead. So Tamar has been having a terrible time with her husband as they both died. Um, but Judah, who was one of Joseph's brothers, says, okay, just wait because I have a, another son, Shayla, or Sheila, Shayla, I don't know. But he has another son who's going to grow up and he promised to have him marry Tamar. So the day came when he was grown up. Judah did not give him to Tamar. And so she got out of her mourning clothes and mourning, I mean like grieving clothes. Um, she disguised herself as a prostitute and tricked basically Judah into sleeping with her. There was this whole story about exchange, like an exchange of price he promised her a goat, and then she said, well, you know, in the meantime, while I don't have the goat yet, can you give me a pledge? So he gave her, like, a cord and a, a seal. He went back to go pay her, and there was no prostitute there. Eventually, he found out that she was pregnant because of that encounter, um, and he said, who slept with my daughter-in-law? Like, I will, that man will be put to death, like, whoever did this, basically not knowing that it was him. And then she revealed the pledge that he had given her and he realized it was him. So like he did not kill himself. He just said he admitted that she was more righteous than him because he didn't ever fulfill his promise of giving her the youngest son. Okay. So then we're back to the Joseph story. Um, and he's now in the Pharaoh's like palace because when he was sold as a slave, he was actually sold as Pharaoh's officials slave so he was like the slave of someone that was like second in command so god had favor on him and the people saw that god was with him and they put him in charge of the whole household so he had a lot of responsibility as a slave everything in the palace basically that this or everything in the house was under joseph's care then that official's wife tried to sleep with him multiple times. And he said, no, I would never do that. Like they're treating me well. I'm in charge of this whole house. I would never try to sleep with you. So one day she tried to get him like into bed with her and he had his coat on and he ran out of the, like he ran away from her to, to not get near her corruption basically. And she still had his coat in her hand. And so she framed him and said that he had made advances on her and the proof was that she had his coat, which is so slimy. I hate that. <laughs> um, but yes, that's what happened. So she framed him and Joseph was put in jail for two years. While he was in jail, he interpreted two dreams that came true. One of them was a cupbearer um, and he basically saw, had a dream and Joseph interpreted it to mean that he was getting released from jail essentially and he would be back in the pharaoh's palace and then the bread maker he said his dream meant that he would be impaled which is very dark and that like birds would pluck out his eyes and or like pluck his head and that happened too they both got fulfilled 
And Joseph actually said specifically to the cupbearer, this is a sad passage a little bit because he's like, I don't deserve to be in this prison. I didn't do anything. Um, I'm still getting framed. I shouldn't even be a slave at all. And now I'm in prison. He said to the cupbearer, when you get released and get back into Pharaoh's house, because I know that that's what your dream meant, remember me and tell them that I shouldn't be in here. And then it like immediately goes, and the cupbearer forgot. (laughs) And so he never brought up that Joseph should not be in there. But then the Pharaoh in Genesis 41 said that he had dreams about like, there were seven fat cows and seven skinny cows and seven fat cows. And the same thing with corn stalks. There were like seven good ones, seven bad ones, seven good ones. And no one could interpret this dream. So the cupbearer finally remembered that Joseph was just sitting in prison having interpreted his dreams. And Joseph got called up and he said that that means there will be seven good years and then seven years of a famine. Again, he got put placed in an area with a lot of responsibility. He was put in charge of not only the household this time, but the entire palace and the entire land of Egypt. So he wasn't Pharaoh. He was like second in command to Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh even said like, you're basically, you are the equivalent of me. I just have the title of Pharaoh. So he would go around and like manage the grain. So they had to um, save off a fifth of the grain every year in these stores. They were overflowing with grain and they were prepared for the seven years of famine. So in Genesis 42, it flashes back to Canaan where Jacob and all of the, the brothers, all of Joseph's brothers are staying. They ran out of food because it was when the famine hit. So Jacob sent all the brothers except for Benjamin to go get grain. He did not want to send Benjamin to get grain because he said, this is like the last son of Rachel and he loved Rachel the most and it was the youngest. And he basically said if he loses Benjamin too, he would die. Like he would just want to die. So all of the other 10 brothers went. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And so he actually, there's like this weird back and forth of this whole story. And it, it makes sense by the end. But he accuses them of being spies. And what I realize later is he doesn't know if they're good or bad. Like they sold him into slavery. They could easily be just as mean and kind of evil as before. Or they could be nice. So he accused them of being spies and like asked about their family and asked about do they have other brothers. They basically said that one of them was dead, but they had another younger brother. So he said, okay, I'm going to keep one of your brothers here in the jail while the rest of you bring grain to your family and go bring your youngest brother to me. And I was confused about this because I was like, did he just bring Benjamin? Did he just make Benjamin come to Egypt so that the dream of all 11 of them bowing together was fulfilled? But that's a very shallow reason. And that is not the case. So basically Joseph and Benjamin are full blood brothers and he wants to see him is what it seems like. And we see later he has a very special connection with Benjamin. So it's basically just he misses his brother and he wants him to come and see him because Joseph is not going to go voyage to Canaan. And then he also and then there's also like a another whole kind of plot that plays out in a couple chapters, but um so yeah, so they go back with so Simeon stays in the jail, which is one of the other brothers. The rest of the brothers go back to Canaan go back to their father's house and say, the man is demanding that you bring, that we bring the younger brother. Jacob does not want this to happen. He's like, why did you even tell them about this younger brother? I cannot lose him. Um, 
they one of the brothers says that like okay if he dies i take full responsibility eventually jacob agrees and all the brothers come back oh i should mention when when the brothers go first leave uh joseph joseph orders the silver to be put back in their bags and they think it's some sort of mis- of a mistake um so he's basically testing them to see if they're honest because the next time they come in they bring him gifts they bring back the silver that they were supposed to pay the first time and then they bring more silver to pay for the grain that they were getting this time so he sees that they're honest because they're not just like oh we got free grain they bring back the money like an honest there's some hints of them being honest now so all the brothers go back to joseph joseph sees them coming and they see he sees them from a distance that benjamin is with them he's like overjoyed and he invites them to come and eat at noon at the palace the brothers thought that he had figured out that they stole or thought that they had stole the silver that they went back home with the last time so they were all nervous they all came in to eat um joseph was so overwhelmed by the sight of his brother that he went and wept and and this is when they all bowed to him so this is like the fulfillment of the dream that all 11 are bowing so then after their great meal he still has not revealed that he's their brother yet so because he wants to test them basically one more time so he sends them all back to he said okay fill their grains full but put this silver chalice into benjamin's sack then he lets them go on for a little bit and then tells one of his like servants to race after them and accuse one of them of stealing this chalice and so again so they get to him they start looking through all the bags and you know the older brother says no one in our party has this. Why would we steal anything? If you find this chalice on any one of us, that person will be put to death and will be slaves. So they found it in Benjamin's bag. They're all flabbergasted. They don't know what to do. They start tearing their clothes and mourning and stuff because they know that Jacob, this is Jacob's favorite son. They had pledged to keep him safe. They had promised so many times. And now Benjamin, they literally just said that they would get put to death and be slaves and not be able to return home so this is like the worst case scenario so they ride back to the city they explain what happened um they see that the brothers like one of his older brothers steps in and says listen i will be your slave just let this younger son return to my father because if if he doesn't like my dad's gonna die because this is like he can't handle this again so we see that his brothers have fully changed. They're now like, even though Benjamin's a favorite son and he's the youngest and all of this stuff, it's like a parallel of, of Joseph. Benjamin's basically a parallel of Joseph. They're treating him well now. So they know that he knows that the brothers have changed. So he finally reveals himself. There's like weeping and everyone is like all reunited and happy and all is well there. So then Jacob said um, to go get the father to get Jacob and bring everything they have to Egypt to have them settle in Egypt. The Pharaoh agreed to give them the best of the land. The famine got really, really bad. Basically, the people had to give them all their money in exchange for the food that um, Joseph and the Pharaoh had saved up for the last seven years. They had to sell in all their livestock and then they were basically slaves. Everyone in the region was a slave, but in exchange for like their labor and stuff, Joseph gave them seeds to keep planting their own food to give them like a kind of reliable source of food. And the only rule was they had to give back one fifth 
back to the pharaoh. So they said, oh, like, praise to the pharaoh, you saved our lives because it gave them a way of growing their own food. So in Genesis 48, we see Jacob is about to die and Joseph's sons are basically adopted by Jacob. So that was kind of confusing um, because I didn't know why, like, Jacob basically said, hey, your two sons are my sons now. And then he blessed them. And I was confused by this as well. So I looked this up. This was a common practice. It, It seems like a lot of people are just kind of adopted, like as an adult. And that essentially means that you're sharing in the heir and in the inheritance. So these two sons got a share of the land of the land that was promised to Jacob. So they both um, are going to be nations of their own. And that's why Jacob considered them his sons because he's giving them part of the inheritance. So Jacob, again, we see this uh, theme all throughout the Old Testament or all throughout Genesis is that Jacob actually crosses his arms. He's supposed to bless like traditionally, I think it said his, the older son was on his right and the younger son was on his left. Well, Jacob crossed his arms, so he was putting the better blessing, essentially, on the younger son. It's just like all these generations, the younger son is getting blessed. Joseph said, no, 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 you should be doing this the opposite way. But Jacob said, nope, um, this is the right way. Basically, both of these sons will have nations, but Ephraim's, who's the younger sons, will be greater. Then in Genesis 49, Jacob actually, in his like dying breath, um, prophesies to every single one of the brothers about what their future is going to be. So like what the, so this is the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, which I'll probably go into like in another episode. Um, but each one of the brothers is like a tribe of Israel that will go and build a nation. Um, so for example, like Reuben, oh, this is where Reuben's thing comes back in because Reuben, if you remember, slept with Jacob's concubine and like defiled the dad's bed. And this is where that comes back in where it says, Reuben, you will no longer excel because you've defiled my bed. So there was punishment for that. He didn't get a good blessing. So it goes through all 12 brothers and then Jacob dies. So in Genesis 50, Joseph is mourning his father. They embalm the dad and mourn for or they embalm him for 40 days and then they have to go bury uh, Jacob or Israel and they have to actually go back to Canaan. They, they travel back there to bury his father because he did not want to get uh, buried in Egypt. And then at the end of this chapter, Joseph ends up dying and says, surely God will take you out to the land promised to our father. So like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's all for Genesis. We made it through all of Genesis. I hope you enjoyed that summary and it wasn't uh, super boring, but I think it's important to have the summary in order to introduce the questions that I had in the chapter. So um, let me know if you have any additional questions about that. Um, But we have a few more chapters. So we're in Exodus now. Exodus is crazy. I don't think I've made it to Exodus in years. Exodus is all about the Israelites being enslaved. So after Joseph died and after the Pharaoh died, a new king and Pharaoh came to power that did not care about who Joseph was at all and enslaved them. He, he told these two midwives to kill every single boy, like if as the baby was being born, if it was a boy to kill them. But these two midwives were good people and knew God, it said. And they basically lied to the king and said, well, these Israelite women are super strong they have the kid before we are even there. Like they, they give birth before we're even there. So we can't kill them. Um, that's good. So they were blessed by God for that. But then 
the Pharaoh said, well, then all boys must be thrown into the Nile River. So everyone's supposed to throw their babies into the Nile River. Well, Moses's mom, before we know that his name is Moses, had had Moses and he hit she hit him for three months and then made a basket and like sealed up the holes with pitch and tar and placed him in this basket and sent him down the Nile River. It was picked up. The basket was picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter who and I don't know if this is like standard, but he she found the baby and said, "Oh, this is a an Israelite baby." go get an Israelite woman to nurse this baby. And they actually went and just got um, Moses's actual mom without knowing it was her mo- his mom. And so she actually got to spend a lot of time with Moses as he kind of was getting older because she had to breastfeed him. So Moses grew up. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew in a field and he murdered the Egyptian. So this is like, I mean, Moses plays a huge role in Exodus, but he was not perfect. He just murdered an Egyptian guy. So word had actually got out that he had murdered this guy and everyone was like, oh, what are you going to kill us too? So Moses actually fled away from the entire region. Once he was back at the in this region, um, he got married to a woman named Zipporah and had a child. And then it said God was concerned for his people because they were enslaved. And I looked up the whole thing about God being concerned. And if you watch the last Bible episode, it's kind of like the whole thing where it said God regretted making humans. It's like the closest thing that we can feel to a human emotion, but we can't really understand these kinds of emotions because it's God. So when it says that he was concerned, it wasn't like, oh, I don't know what is going to happen. I'm so concerned. It's more like these are his chosen people and they're getting mistreated. So it hurts him and it hurts his heart to, to see it. So he's not concerned in the fact of like, I'm unsure. So basically from Exodus 3 through 7, which is where we're going to end today, Um, God is telling Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand um, that his people be let go and, and that his uh, people can go worship in the wilderness and praise God. The Pharaoh's heart is super hardened and he does not listen. But I thought the, the, a big point I wanted to make here, which I love this part. This is like been an example that I've used in a lot of things, but I I haven't read the story in a really long time. Basically he goes and says to Moses to like go speak and go lead this whole thing. And Moses said, well, I am bad at speaking. I'm really, really bad at speaking. So he's calling Moses to use his strengths that, I mean, he's calling Moses in a way that is utilizing his biggest weakness. And eventually he gets Aaron to help him speak. So like Moses will do this stuff and show like these miraculous things that God can do to prove that it's God. Um, But then his brother Aaron will go speak to the Pharaoh. And then this is like one of the last things we'll talk about. There was a very, very weird part in Exodus 4 where it said that the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him as he passed through this like lodging place. And then um, his wife circumcised their son and touched the foreskin to Abraham. I mean, to Moses. Why did I say Abraham? Um, That was really weird. So I looked that up. And first of all, I was like, why did the Lord almost kill Moses? So again, he didn't almost kill Moses. This book was written from Moses's perspective. So from Moses's perspective, it seemed like the Lord almost killed him because it was very scary. Um, But the whole thing with the touching of the foreskin, which was super odd, was that it was a reminder from God 
that Moses was not holding up his end of the covenant. So the covenant to get this land and to, you know, the promised land and have this whole nation, the promise was, was circumcision. And Moses had not been holding up his end of the bargain. So this was basically a scary reminder for Moses to do that, basically. So that was a weird part, but it's kind of, uh, it kind of makes sense once you dive into the meeting. And then the last couple chapters we read were just the start of the plagues. So it just shows that the Israelites were getting even more and more mistreated. Um, at first they were on board with Moses' whole thing, but then, you know, the Pharaoh kind of like retaliated and made work even harder. And so they were like not about Moses anymore. They did not care about what he had to say. But God told him to basically be persistent. Signs and wonders will come. There were like three signs that that, uh, Moses could do. And if, you know, if they don't believe and Pharaoh's heart was going to be hardened, there's going to be more plagues that hit. So this section ends with the plague of frogs about to come. So um, he turned the Nile into blood and Pharaoh still didn't let the people go, didn't believe him. And we are right on the brink of more plagues. But that is all I read for this week, Exodus, or Genesis 31 to Exodus 7. So, yeah, so I had a lot of questions during that section of scripture. It was very confusing with like some of, you know, the Jacob story and then Moses almost being killed. I thought that was kind of confusing, but I ended up really liking that section. I really like Genesis. A lot happens and I'm very excited to see what happens in Exodus. So, um, if you want to follow along for next week, we are going to be going over Exodus 8 to Exodus 33. So write down your questions as you read. Send me the, like DM me your questions. I would love to research them and report back. So thanks all for listening so much. Um, I really appreciate your support with this podcast. Make sure to share it, put on your Instagram story, um, show me that you're listening and go leave an Apple review. That would help a ton and follow me on whatever platform you are listening to. So um, I will talk to you all on Monday. I think we're going to be talking about diet culture because I went on this TikTok deep dive about the hashtag diet culture and I have some thoughts. I, uh, some of these, some of these TikTok people, um, I do not agree with at all. So, um, we're going to be talking about dieting, diet culture, and all that good stuff. So tune in on Monday to hear more about that. And I'll talk to you then. Bye everyone. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our millennial learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a millennial learns. Go check me out. Follow me, DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday.